I don't know what your experience is with uh, Santa Claus, but it seems to me like the guy often ends up proving to be kind of lenient. Two anecdotes. I only got coal in my stocking one year growing up, and it, that turned out to be because my sister spitefully slipped it in on Christmas Eve, I, and I know I deserved it more than once along the way. Uh, but more than that, I remember being confused. Like It was like clockwork every year. You come back from school after Christmas break in that first week of January. My most poorly behaved classmates inevitably returned to school with fresh clothes and the reports of Santa bringing them the newest gaming systems. For all the talk of seeing us when we're sleeping and knowing if we've been bad or good, Santa seems to find a way to let a lot slide when Christmas comes around each year. And listen, I have no complaints about that. But for some of us, Santa has crept into our imagination of God. Right? So if lenient Santa becomes who God is to us, it's easy to imagine that God, too, will grade on a curve on that last day. He'll surely let some things slide, friendly and jolly as God is, No? And as much as we'd like to believe that, the problem is it doesn't match up with what we see in this book. What he actually says about himself in these pages is that he's going to judge us humans by the strictest standard imaginable, namely perfection. Nothing less will be accepted. Look at the words of Jesus himself. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees, those were the most meticulous rule followers around. They even gave a tenth of their spices to make sure that they didn't break the laws about offering. But Jesus says, hey, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're not the bar, the standard. The bar is higher than that. Here's the bar, 100% perfection. 100% obedience to every word God has ever said. The question on that day will be, did you meet that bar or didn't you? Kind of overwhelming, right? Leaves all of us doomed. But what if God, the judge, were to announce a provision in the rule book, so to speak, that we hadn't previously known about? And by the way, I thought of this because my kids love to change the rules of a game right in the middle of it. Uh, usually as soon as I start winning. Like, Dad, from now on, all of our goals count as two points and all your goals count as one point. Things like that. If you're losing, a rule change can be your only hope. Uh, and so I don't know about you, but for me, as a person squarely on the losing side of that 100% perfection bar, I'm all ears about a possible provision in the rule book that could rescue me from certain defeat. So what if God announced a previously unknown rule provision that the borrowing of righteousness was allowed? That the borrowing of righteousness was allowed. In other words, yes, the standard is still 100% obedience to every word God has said. But if we can find someone who did achieve that 100% perfection, you or I, who didn't, are permitted to borrow that person's 100% so that it'll count for us. That's essentially the gift that we're looking at this morning. That the Son of God did say to us, here, I did find a way to attain perfection. You can take my 100% and present it to God as your own. Did 
you get your Bible out and your note-taking devices ready? We're going to jump around a bit today uh, from text to text. If you were able to join us last week, uh, you know our Advent series is on four gifts. The Father's gift, the Son's gift, the Spirit's gift, and our gift. We very loosely based this series on this helpful little booklet called uh, Very Different Christmas by Rico Tice and Nate Morgan Locke. Uh, last week, Dr. Bialek preached on the Father's gift to us. He reminded us when God the Father looked down on our world, he could have given us anything, but what he saw fit to give us was this baby, his son. This week we look at not the Father's gift to us, but the Son's gift to us. And what's the Son's gift to us? There are probably many ways we can answer that question. Today we're just going to focus on one gift given to us by the Son. That's the Son's lifetime, 100%, so to speak, that he allows us to borrow. His perfect life offered to us. But here's the thing, he had to earn that 100% first. And on that Bethlehem night, as Jesus lay in that manger, he had not yet earned that 100%. He hadn't yet accumulated positive human acts of righteousness that could then be credited to your account and to my account. So today we're reflecting on those 33 years of Jesus' life before he died. And as we do, we'll be able to answer a question that maybe brings all this into focus. Maybe you've wondered this at some point. Um, What would be different if the baby in the manger had gone straight from the manger to the cross? Why, in other words, if if he came to earth to die, as we're often fond of saying, why did he bother with 33 years of not dying, right? If Jesus came to die for us, why didn't he just do the whole dying thing right away? Why not get straight to the point? And the answer that the church has affirmed for 2,000 years now is that Jesus' death would have done very little for us if not for the accompanying gift of his perfect life. So just two parts of this reflection today. First, a survey of Christ's perfect life and then some thinking about the significance of Christ's perfect life. So survey and significance. First, a quick survey. Uh, This is a Ryan Welsh analogy. Um, Speeding. The law forbids it. Next time you drive past a police officer who's posted up on 94... You will fulfill that law forbidding speeding. Uh, One way or the other, you will. Every one of us will. Either we will fulfill it by driving the speed limit or by getting pulled over and paying a fine that satisfies the law's demands for failing to drive the speed limit. See? In other words, although we're not all going to fulfill the law's demands in the same way, there's no way around it. We're all going to fulfill the law. And then extrapolating that analogy from speeding to our whole lives, lived in front of God the judge, theologians have said it like this, that God's law includes both positive demands, like what we're supposed to do, and what we might call penal sanctions. That's the punishment if we don't do what we're supposed to do. If we don't fulfill the positive demands, then we're forced to fulfill the penal sanctions. And in that sense, we all fulfill the law, one way or the other. Now, the shocking teaching in the Bible is that Jesus double fulfilled the law. He's the only one. He he did it. Like, he kept the positive demands of the law. And then he suffered the penal sanctions as though he hadn't kept the positive demands. He drove the speed limit, and then he paid the speeding ticket anyway. Let's look at it. So first, to what extent did Jesus fulfill the positive demands of the law? Luke's gospel, in particular, takes pains to show that from his very first days, before he could talk, Jesus was fulfilling the law to the letter. Here it is, Luke 2, verses 21 to 24. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, 
And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they, that's Mary and Joseph, brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And then Luke points out, just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, again, according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Even before Jesus is old enough to make his own choices, he's fulfilling the positive demands of the law. Jesus then grows up. He gets baptized. Why does Jesus need to get baptized? John the Baptist, who baptizes him, is just as confused at that as we are, as the readers of it. What does Jesus say to John, though? John tries to stop him. I need to be baptized by you, yet you come to me. Jesus answered him, allow it for now because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. This is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. Jesus is taking pains to make sure he fulfills every letter of the law's positive demands. And as a result, what does God the Father speak over him? Just in the next verse. Jesus was baptized. He went up immediately from the water. Heavens opened. Sees the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Those same words get spoken over Jesus by God the Father again. Fourteen chapters later at Jesus' transfiguration. Matthew 17. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father is well pleased with His Son in part because His Son has positively fulfilled the demands of the law. Whatever God has commanded, Jesus has done. So at the end of his life, Jesus owes no penal sanction. If you don't speed, you have no obligation to pay a fine. And as Hebrews 4 affirms, Jesus made it to the end without a single sin. It says, we do not have a a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Yet he does pay the fine anyway. He didn't just come to fulfill the law once, he came to fulfill it twice. Not only the positive demands, but also the penal sanctions. The penal sanctions we're maybe more familiar with, many of us. His blood turns the Father's wrath away and redeems us. That's Romans 3 that was read earlier in the service. A couple chapters later, it's his blood, again, that justifies us. His death that reconciles us. It's Romans 5, 9 and 10. How much more then, since we've now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath, for if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? But while we talk about those features of Jesus' death all the time at a church like ours, look at that emphasis at the end of verse 10. That bloody death up here only saves us because Jesus lived a perfect life. His life and death, in other words, work in tandem. If he had slipped up and sinned, failing to keep the law's positive demands, even once, then that penal sanction, his death on the cross, would have just been what he deserved. It wouldn't be a gift to us. It would just be justice being satisfied with respect to him. End of story. He sped. He paid the speeding ticket. So, friends, we owe our lives not just to Jesus' death, but also to his perfect life. Can you imagine living a perfect life? I know I can't. Um... True story, I remember an evening early in our marriage when Sarah made note of a kitchen task that I had said I would do but I hadn't done, at which time I reacted with a disproportionate level of exasperation. And her response to my reaction was, hey, I don't get it. Why is it so offensive that I just brought up something that you forgot? And without thinking, I just blurted out, 
I just want to have one day where I get everything right. Sarah's like, honey, I have bad news for you. And sure enough, I'm still chasing that perfect day. Anybody else? Hasn't happened yet. And it's not like you and I are experiencing near misses, like almost had it. We're not really even all that close to landing in the zip code of a perfect day, right? Pick the day, think about this, pick the day on which you were most devoted to God in the year 2023. If you could think of that, right? How would you feel if we said, hey, listen, we found a transcript of all your thoughts from that day. Every one of them. Everything that ran through your mind, we're going to publish it. Or, hey, we're going to put all your words from that day, just that day only, on a plaque outside your door of your house. Or, hey, we're going to use these screens up here to display God's evaluation of your attitude that day, moment by moment, kind of running monitor of it. Anybody welcoming any of that? I'm not. And, that, and that's talking about our best day. Even the day on which we're most devoted to God is riddled with shameful sin. Even the best stuff we do is tainted by not entirely pure motives. What's even crazier is we're talking about living just one perfect day. Jesus lived on this earth about 12,000 days without letting a careless word slip once. Without a single mean thought. Ever thought about how truly wild that is? And you say, well, he's God. Of course he did. But as we pointed out before, Jesus felt temptation more than any of us have. I think it was C.S. Lewis maybe who so helpfully explained, when you and I give in to temptation, as we all do, we short-circuit the temptation at that point so that it ends prematurely. After all, once we sin, the temptation's over, right? So we feel that pull then for a shorter duration of time than we would have if we would have resisted a little longer and not given in. So because Jesus is the one who never gave in to temptation, he thereby experienced temptation more profoundly than any of us have, not less profoundly. And yet, by the power of God's spirit that's available to each of us, by the way, he never gave in. Again, let's look at uh, Hebrews 4 once again. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. What a disciplined, surrendered life. I'm amazed at his perfect keeping of the law's positive demands, right? Now, why does it matter? That's the second part of what we're looking at today, the significance of it. So question to chew on here. We said Christ fulfilled the law in two ways, the positive demands and the penal sanctions. When we borrow his righteousness, which of those gets credited to our account? The positive fulfillment or the punishment fulfillment? We often focus on the latter, right? That his death is him taking the punishment in our place, and that's true. But the right answer is actually that both get credited to our account. Yes, his death counts as ours so that his death makes it as if we had paid the price for our law-breaking, clearing our record, erasing the negative entries on our account. But here's the thing. If only his death were credited to us, that would just get us back to zero. Clean slate again. And zero doesn't do us any good at all when we're standing before a God who has demanded a positive, perfect keeping of his law. See, the good news isn't good news. Unless it's not only Jesus' death that gets credited to us, but also his perfect life. So that when we stand before God, we don't just present to him a blank page, empty hands, without sin. We get to present to him the 100% perf perfect righteousness of Christ. That's why when John Calvin raised this question centuries ago, his answer wasn't maybe what we'd expect. 
He says, now someone asked, how has Christ abolished sin, banished the separation between us and God, and acquired righteousness to render God favorable and kindly to us? How? We might expect him to say, death and resurrection of Jesus. Instead, he says, to this we can in general apply, he has achieved this for us by the whole course of his obedience. The whole course of his obedience. Calvin supports this claim by using Romans 5.19. Check it out. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, we might expect so also through the one man's death, but it says this, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now to clarify, yes, the price paid to free us from sin and death was paid in a particular way at the cross and affected at the empty tomb. Still, Calvin rightly says, from the time when he took on the form of a servant, he began to pay the price of liberation in order to redeem us. I think that's also what Charles Wesley meant in his Christmas song when he didn't just say, hey, by, the, by thy death and resurrection raise us to thy glorious throne. How's the song go? By thine all-sufficient merit raise us to thy glorious throne. That's his life. Jesus' perfect life. So... <clears throat> Based on what we've looked at so far this morning, how would you evaluate this common Christian claim? And I've made this claim myself, but now I'm evaluating it. Hey, Christmas is great and all, but Easter is really what our faith rides on. You ever heard somebody say that? Christmas is great and all, Easter is really what our faith really rides on. How would you evaluate that? Fair enough, right? But if we take this to mean that Easter is all that matters, and the rest is just window dressing. Then what's the answer to the question that we raised at the beginning of our time together this morning? Hey, what if the baby in the manger had gone straight from manger to cross? Or what if Jesus had parachuted down here as an adult, marched straight to Golgotha, got it over with, rose again, and ascended? What would be different for us? And Jake Resser Machen reflected on that question 100 years ago and concluded, hey, I think we'd actually be back in the same situation Adam was in before he took the fruit. Does that make sense? Like, like the penalty of sin would be erased because it would have all been paid by Christ at the cross. We'd be like Adam. No penal sanction hanging over our heads. But as Machen says it, for the future, for our future, the attainment of eternal life would have been dependent on our perfect obedience from then on to the law of God. In other words, if Jesus had parachuted to Calvary and gone straight to the cross, what we would have received would have been a second chance, so to speak. Like, hey, hope you get it right this time. Don't blow it. Your eternal future is riding on whether you can live the rest of your days in perfect obedience. Now that Christ has erased the penalty and gotten you back to zero, good luck earning the positive righteousness needed for entry to heaven. But that won't do, right? We need better than just a clean slate and a second chance. We need to borrow someone else's perfection. And that's why this Christmas I'm particularly thankful for, and this is our big idea today, that we're saved not only by Christ's death, but also by his perfect life. I know there's no action step in this big idea, just trying to make much of Jesus this morning and this great gift of a perfect life he's given us. We are saved not only by Christ's death, but also by his perfect life. Friends, God is not Santa Claus. Judgment day is coming, and the judge is not going to be lenient. If we can stand before him and present a perfect 100% record of positive adherence to the law's demands, we're in. If we present anything other than that, we're out. 
but he made it so that we can borrow Jesus' 100% and offer it to him. Before facing God, we're allowed to swap records with Jesus such that we can stand before God and present Jesus' 100% as though it's our own. And it counts. And that's why Jesus needed to live those 33 years and earn that 100% for all time. It's not just his death that saved us. A blank slate wouldn't have been good enough. It's Jesus, when Jesus said, it is finished up on that cross, it, he wasn't just talking about his death. He was talking about his whole perfect life. We needed somebody's 100% that we could borrow. Michael Horton summarized it well. He says, it's good to know, especially when facing the next world, that for every time that we have failed to conform to God's will in thought, word, and deed, by actively sinning or failing to conform to his revealed will, his son has fulfilled the obedience that we owe. By never once giving in to the lust, pride, sloth, greed, selfishness, and malice that are so often allowed space in our overcrowded hearts, Jesus Christ becomes our Savior, not only in his atoning death, but throughout his life. In this way, every day of his life was as necessary for our salvation as that dark afternoon on Golgotha. That's good news for us. When we sin today, tomorrow, the rest of this week, leading up to Christmas, we become consciously aware that we've blown it. Jesus did it for us in our place. Thank you, Jesus, for your perfect double fulfillment of the law in our place. Let's pray. Lord, that is our thanksgiving this morning. <clears throat> you sent your son not just to die for us, though that's what we're supremely thankful for, but we also thank you for his perfect life on our behalf. Earning that merit, that favor that we could not earn. Not just clearing our slate back to zero, but giving us something to present before you on that last day, something that would be acceptable to you. And so God, as we were uh, beaten down by the awareness of our sin, even this week, as we become painfully aware of just how short we fall of your standard, please encourage our hearts by reminding us that Jesus died to pay the punishment for our sin, but also that he lived the perfect life so that we could have that credited to our account and be able to offer it to you on that last day. Help that to encourage our souls this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, we're going to respond with a uh, corporate prayer of confession, so we'll read it out loud um, all together. Um, do read it um, aloud with us as you feel led. It'll be on the screen. Let's pray. Lord Christ, Christ you, you appeared, appeared so, so that, that you might take away sins. In you, there is no sin. You so loved the world that you left your throne to enter it but we, we often resist loving one another. You grieved with us in sickness and suffering, but we often turn our backs on the suffering we see. You diligently withstood temptation through scripture, but we often give in without a thought of your word. You did not retaliate when you were mocked, but we often fight back with greater offense. You knelt and prayed, your will be done, but we often pursue our own will. You bore the Father's wrath and died in our place, but we often refuse to die to our own flesh. Christ, have mercy. You appeared so that you might take away sins. In you, there is no sin.
We praise you, Lord Jesus, for the gift of your perfect life for us imperfect sinners. Amen. Here's this good news from 1 Peter 2. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Let's stand and sing. <laughs> 